Hello, you are listening to Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, Trade and Globalization Editor at The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we're going to be talking about regulation, which in a crisis like the one we're currently experiencing really, really matters. Everyone in the world is trying to buy medical supplies, masks, respirators, ventilators. And as a manufacturer to the world, China has been increasing its exports a lot from where things were in January and February. But if you've been following the news, you'll have heard that some of the supplies that it's shipping out there to the world are turning out to be faulty. Not okay. One of the problems here is that we live in a world where regulations for these products are just not harmonized. And we're going to talk about that and how during the pandemic, some of the regulations have been changing. And we're going to bring in some economic research about an older scandal to help understand some of what regulators are actually doing today. So quick recap, there is a pandemic going on right now, and and everyone has realized at the same time that they do not have enough personal protective equipment. One of the most sought after pieces of, of kit has been this N95 respirator. And so that's the fancy surgical mask that, that doctors and nurses need. It's more protective than a traditional surgical mask, and so it's better at filtering out those tiny contagious particles, that the drops of liquid that are the way the disease can be transmitted. The N95 in that N95 refers to the fact that these masks block out 95% of airborne particles. I have a confession, which is at first I thought it was a brand of mask, but no, it is it is relevant to the specification of the mask. Um, and, and these masks are useful for medical personnel, but they're also used by people in manufacturing or, or in construction. Um, they need protection from chemicals and, and dust. My mom has, has spent the last few weeks sewing um, face masks. And I think more generally out there, a, a lot of people have doing this. There have been a, amazing efforts to make a lot of this protective equipment. But unfortunately, U.S. regulations mean that these N95 masks, you can't make them at home. The National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH, they're the ones who regulate these N95 masks, at least for the, for the non-healthcare workers. And it's the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or the, the FDA, that oversees the ones that doctors and nurses need. So in the United States, these are the regulators who say, Yes, if you make this thing, you can claim that if it's properly used, the respirator will filter out 95% of those particles. But they're also the ones that are stopping you from saying that if something that you make doesn't actually fit those specifications. So when thinking about how these products are regulated, the, the FDA splits the different kinds of products into categories, depending on the on the risks of something going wrong. So there's class one, which is low risk. And so that might be things like latex gloves for examining patients. Class three are the, are the really risky ones. So things like a defibrillator or, or a heart pacemaker. And then class two is obviously in the middle. Those are kind of the moderate risk items. And because there's always some risk of things going wrong for these class two and, and class three products, all the manufacturers of those have to test their products and then send the regulators their data to show that you know that they actually work. 
I spoke to Dr. Susan Alpert. Susan is the former director of device evaluation at the Food and Drug Administration. And I asked her about the, the three different classes of products and what that meant for the regulators. So class three products, FDA doesn't just look at the testing and whether or not there is a quality system in place. FDA requires everything from design, understanding all of the materials and materials testing, all of the testing of the device generally includes bench testing, animal testing, and clinical testing, clinical trials, establishing the that benefits outweigh risks, that products are not just safe, but also effective to meet the claim that the manufacturer has for the use of that device. The respirators are in class two, which is moderate risk or well understood risk. And what that means is that for a class two product to go to market, it has to meet general controls, things like labeling a good quality system, consistency in, in how they manufacture the product, things of that sort. In addition to the general controls, there are what is called special controls, special types of testing. Generally, that means bench testing, things like biocompatibility if they're worn or touch the patient or the user, things of that sort. In normal times, everyone has to satisfy these regulations, uh, and that means foreign companies too. So a Chinese company would have to submit its testing data to the FDA before it would be allowed to put on the, the label on the package that, that would convince U.S. hospitals to actually buy the product. That's what happens in normal times, but obviously we're not in normal times now. We are in a pandemic and we desperately need more of this equipment right now. So there's been a huge demand for these products with the pandemic and not enough supply and so we asked Susan what the FDA was doing in response. FDA has, has made products available in two ways. One way they have made them broadly available is by putting out a guidance document that says what products that are already in the market can be sold into healthcare specifically for COVID-19 so that hospitals can use them for this particular use without having to go back to FDA. And for products that they need to look at, they can issue what are called emergency use authorizations. So the companies do bring their information to FDA, but it's not as rigorous a set of information or as rigorous a review. And they are allowing those products to be used for the purpose of this emergency. But once the emergency is over, those products will come out of the market. So on March the 2nd, the FDA said that N95 respirators that were approved by NIOSH, this other regulator, those masks that were approved in, in places like chemical plants would now automatically qualify for use in hospitals. And then they started issuing these emergency use authorizations. So on March 28th, they said that some of the respirators approved in Europe, Australia, Japan and South Korea would now automatically be fine to sell to American hospitals. Those two actions, the extending the authorization for the NIOSH masks to also be used in hospitals, allowing for respirators to come in from, from some of these other countries, that clearly wasn't enough. Part of that, of course, was because countries in, in Europe, Japan, South Korea, they were facing shortages of these products as well. 
And so on April 3rd, the FDA issued another one of these emergency use authorizations saying that new Chinese companies that were making other models of respirators, so models that weren't yet certified for the, for the U.S. market, that their respirators could now satisfy the U.S. regulatory process. If the companies that made these other kind of respirators did one of three things. So if either they sold other types of respirators that had already been approved by NIOSH, maybe different varieties, that was okay. Or if these Chinese companies sold some kind of respirator that was certified by one of the regulatory agencies in China that covers these types of devices, that would be okay. Or if they could put together quickly their their data and send it to the FDA to show that their respirators were, were actually legitimate. So what the FDA is doing here is just trying to help people who really want protective equipment to get access to it. They're saying, look, we know that regulations can be a barrier to you getting the stuff that you need, and so we're going to make life a bit easier for you. Unfortunately, it seems like some hucksters got involved, and and they may have tried to take advantage of the crisis and, and demand for personal protective equipment to make some substandard equipment. And so, you know, th- this really wasn't just a Chinese issue. There were there were also accusations that some substandard American respirators were, were being sold. But the, the products that really hit the headlines were, were the Chinese ones. Now, there's a, there's a political backdrop to that. There's also the fact that China does make a lot of this stuff. Um, and also China was, was ramping up production probably ahead of, of other countries. And I suppose we should also add that this wasn't the first time, of course, during the pandemic that reports of this kind had, had surfaced. They'd, they'd even come up in China itself, um, not surprisingly, you know, when it was, it was the first country hit with the crisis and in Europe as well. So this isn't just an American issue. But on, on May 7th, the Food and Drug Administration did tighten the rules a bit by making it a bit harder for some of these Chinese respirators to ultimately get approval to come into the United States. More generally, though, the rules were still more relaxed than they had been before the crisis started. And and as well as this, this kind of slightly relaxed process for getting approval, the FDA was doing something else. It was tightening up on companies that were caught cheating, breaking the rules. Here's Susan. FDA has a lot of enforcement authority. If something is illegal, doesn't have the appropriate clearance or shouldn't be in the market, FDA has the authority to take action. So for products that are making medical claims, FDA is going after them, if they know about them, going after them with their usual tools. But in addition, they know that lots of things are being sold illegally on the internet. So they set up something called Operation Quack Hack, where anybody can report things that are going on on the internet to FDA, and FDA will go after them and try to get them to take those things down so that people are not acquiring tests or treatments that aren't effective. This Operation Quack Hack, this is um, a pretty good, I think, FDA marketing here. And so basically what they're doing is they're, they're documenting and publicizing any examples they can find of fraudulent behavior, these fraudulent products getting getting out there into the public to help make it easier for you know these bad players, these companies to either get sued or to whatever it takes to, to get their products taken off the market. And what they're trying to do here is to, you know, call out publicly the companies that are that are getting caught engaging in this kind of behavior uh, and they're 
publicizing them on the internet. One of my favorites is a, a, some company called Daddy Baby Company Limited that was trying to uh, sell some of these respirators uh, that were apparently not high quality. And ultimately, what can happen is you can have your authorization to, to sell these things in the United States. That authorization can be revoked. Okay, so uh, all this is going on. And at the same time, the Chinese authorities are also trying to respond. They're clearly worried about these stories, about fake products. Um, and so they started adding export quality checks for, for respirators. So basically, regulations on their end before companies were allowed to export but these Chinese additional regulations, the checks for the exports, they did not go down well at all. American importers started freaking out because they saw them as an unnecessary obstacle to them getting this, this desperately needed protective gear. And so then what happened is you started seeing pressure from the American government, the Trump administration, and even Congress sending letters asking the Chinese regulators to, to relax things a bit. Please send us this, this equipment. The Chinese did respond. On April 26th, they loosened things up again. But the shortages haven't been fixed. So I suspect we should still be watching this space for the kind of regulatory actions that could, could affect demand and supply for this stuff. Okay, so so thinking about, I guess, the economics of this, the, the primary problem here is one of asymmetric information. So you're a hospital, you're a buyer, you're a consumer of this, this gear, and you don't have complete information about the quality of the product when you're trying to buy it. And, and in these crazy times when you're just desperate for anything, there are clearly incentives for companies to take advantage of people and to, to make claims that are not quite true. It turns out that this problem of asymmetric information and, and consumers getting duped for the, the, the products that they want to buy, this isn't the first time that something like this has happened. And when I heard about these problems taking place today, I immediately thought of a, a really nice piece of research about a different scandal. And so we got in touch with G. Bai at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. She's written and done research on this. I started off by asking her to tell us about what happened in China in 2008. There was a big scandal that affected the Chinese dairy industry in 2008. So basically, there was an industrial chemical called metamine was added to infant milk formula. So instead of using actual milk, people used diluted milk, but added metamine to mimic higher protein content in the milk in order to trick the protein inspections. That chemical was particularly bad because it was associated with kidney stones. So the, the result of this led to four infant deaths in the country, and over 50,000 kids were hospitalized. And there was a huge nationwide product recall of the uh, contaminated milk formula. Now, I suspect many listeners will, will remember this story. It was, was really, really horrendous. Um, another case of, of an asymmetry of information where, where you know, consumers of this infant formula couldn't immediately tell if the product was good or bad. And that created an opportunity for people to sell poisonous milk. And so, you know, just, just like with protective masks, there were, there were risks to human life. Following these inspections, product recalls were contaminated, you know, for those products that failed the test were immediately issued. 
and the guilty firm Sandu Group was shut down. And it's actually its top executives were jailed. It was very pretty drastic measures put in place to punish the bad players. But it turns out there may be more than just one reason why it makes sense for government regulators to be so drastic when they actually catch the cheaters. So the obvious answer is to protect the public and ensure consumer safety and to discourage bad behavior in the, in the first place, especially for products like infant formula, which can actually lead to deaths of kids. But perhaps another reason that we think is irrational behind these government regulations is to convince the public, you know, both the domestic and international consumers, that the products of other Chinese dairy farms were actually safe to consume. So yeah, in this case, I think, you know, if you think about collective reputation, it implies a very important externality. You know, if one firm did something bad, it's going to affect the export performance and growth of all of the other firms from the same country, same industry. So it actually makes a lot of sense from a third party, you know, especially government, to step in to try to control this kind of widespread reputation spillovers to the other firms. So the theory here is that the the government regulation isn't just there to protect the consumers. It also might be used to help the the Chinese industry as well, to weed out the bad guys from the good guys and help save the overall industry. In her paper, Xi tried to calculate the, the overall impact of the scandal on the export performance of the Chinese dairy industry. And and she also tried to see how innocent firms were affected and and whether their reputation was hurt by the scandal. So did the scandal spill over to to other non-fraudulent companies? First, we find a big average impact of the scandal on the industry overall. So the average value of the dairy exports fell by almost 70% after scandal. And it didn't recover after five years. So that's the, you know, up till 2013. And in terms of the, you know, how different firms were affected differently, we found that the guilty firms experienced a bigger negative impact. So essentially their exports went down by almost 80% relative to the industry, average industry trend. However, there, there was also a pretty big negative impact on the other two types of firms, including you know, the innocent firms and also the non-inspected firms. These firms suffered almost you know, two-thirds of the impact on the guilty firms, even though these firms didn't do anything wrong. This failure of the Chinese government to save the reputation of the industry is maybe a bit surprising. Yeah, we were expecting some positive reaction. You know, government inspection could help. But one reason why it might not have worked is if people didn't trust the Chinese inspectors. Or maybe the fact that a firm got inspected, maybe it was that that sent a bad signal about the firm in the first place and made consumers even more suspicious. So the information could actually backfire. So thinking about today, the... The obvious question is, are there, any, are there any lessons? What can we learn from the regulatory response back then to that older scandal? If you think about the PPE products and dairy products, one important common feature of these products is, is the information problem. You know, the, the idea is that when consumers purchase these products, it's very hard for buyers to, you know, to actually verify the quality until something catastrophic happens. For markets with this kind of information problems, it's actually very important to think about how 
you know, how those market-based forces like reputation can self-regulate firms to behave good versus, you know, do we need a third party like government to come in to impose regulations? For reputation to work, you need a long-run, you know, long-run player who cares about future returns of maintaining good reputation today. And you know, in light in the in the current situation with COVID, I think there's a huge room for making short-run profits, huge entry opportunities of these mom-and-pop shops of making just uh, substandard PPE products. These firms may benefit from very quick short-run returns. However, the result of that is that it may hurt the long-run reputation of the entire industry. And to the extent that government cares about, you know, the future development of the of the industry overall, they have good reasons to put in, you know, more dramatic measures to maintain the standard today. So my lesson from G's research is that it, it, it's worth stepping back and asking why the Chinese government seems to be trying to make it harder for their exporters to send over this this protective gear. It's probably less about trying to anger the the Trump administration and more about simply preserving the reputation of this very, very important industry for them. And at the moment, it's worth pointing out that everyone is struggling to get the right balance of of safety and, and supply. Uh, back in, in 2008, the, the Chinese dairy industry clearly couldn't be helped. And today, I wonder whether demand is just so high that a lot of fraudsters are, are going to get away with it. They're going to get away with selling substandard stuff. I think if, if people see that the American regulators are uh, okaying this, then then trust will be higher. So that this question of you know people not trusting the Chinese regulators is perhaps a bit less relevant. But I think in future, this this clearly could make it more difficult to harmonize regulatory standards, you know, for example, in a trade deal, right? It, it, it may be more difficult for people to trust that a foreign country's regulatory standards are, are up to scratch, perhaps not understanding the kind of weird circumstances that, that we're in right now. And one other question that, that I'm still left with is whether maybe not all of this is, is actually fraud, but some of it could be misunderstanding that these are just simply different products. And so in China, with different product specifications, maybe they make respirators that only filter out 30 or 50 or 75% of the particulates because those respirators are, are just used for different purposes. And those kinds of products may not be known in the United States because of our regulations. Um, we don't have those. You don't know how to market them. Uh, and so you know, wh- what are you supposed to do? And and maybe during a pandemic like this, when shortages in the United States are so bad that you see reports of medical staff having to wear garbage bags instead of normal protective gear, that maybe a mask that you know isn't quite N95, but is N75 or, or N50, maybe that's better than the alternative of not having any mask at all. And so forced harmonization of standards maybe can go too far if it actually shuts off some of the potentially useful products from, you know, making things better uh, in in the market during these kinds of scenarios. I do think as trade economists, oftentimes we're the ones out there pushing for global standards, sort of a one-size-fits-all, because that would improve efficiency. But I think we're seeing in the pandemic that you need to balance that against you know, the, the needs of local communities and sometimes, uh, you know, different people that have different sizes, shapes, and, 
you know, all of that needs to be kept in mind when we're trying to keep people safe during a pandemic. All of this is really tricky. And I think on that note, everything is complicated. Um, that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Dr. Susan Alpert, former director in the Office of Device Evaluation of the Food and Drug Administration, and now an independent consultant. Thanks to Susan for taking the time to explain to us Food and Drug Administration Regulation 101. Thanks also to G. Bai at Harvard Kennedy School, as well as her co-authors, Ludovica Gaze at the University of Chicago and Yukon Wang at Cornell University. Do read their paper, Collective Reputation in Trade, Evidence from the Chinese Dairy Industry. And thanks also to Florentine Blanc at the OECD and a number of other people we spoke to about regulations and regulatory harmonization. Thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. And do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to regulators trying to ensure the safety and quality of PPE, maybe two is better than one. Does that work? Yeah, I think so. I think. Mm, Okay, fine. So the Chinese regulators are trying to preserve the reputation of their industry as well as the US regulators. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, you, don't, you don't think there's any any room for the Chinese regulators to step in there and do something positive? I mean, the the other paper shows that they couldn't do it because no one trusted them. <laughs> People trust the US ones, right? Yeah, well, but that was, you know, that was then. Maybe this is now. <laughs>